Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. Today is the 28th of February of 2023. And the article that I'm going to be discussing today was published in the February edition of Chest, which, you know, was just recently published as well in February of 2023. The article has a long name, but it's also called the Intravenous Hydroxycobalamin in Septic Shock Trial. Basically, looking at IV vitamin C to see if it improves outcomes in patients who are suffering from septic shock. Now, the concept of metabolic resuscitation has been around for several years. Unfortunately, the data for the utilization of the combination of ascorbic acid, thiamine, and glucocorticoids has honestly not been as robust as we would like. There have been challenges in replicating the miraculous data that was seen in the first trial and every subsequent trial performed thereafter. Now, Being academically honest, there have been numerous limitations to those randomized controlled trials, but everyone can agree that it's not as beneficial as everyone would like. Could there be some subgroups that benefit from it? Sure, but it's not going to benefit all comers, and I've taken a deeper dive into that topic before. Here, though, we're going to be looking at particularly using IV vitamin B12 in septic shock. As I always mention in posts, podcasts, and videos related to metabolic resuscitation is that I have a bias that I want these therapies to work. After all, using cheap and readily available products such as vitamin C, thiamine, and glucocorticoids, and now perhaps maybe even vitamin B12 in septic shock should be something that we are all rooting for. Now, Out of all the different content I create, I'm able to see what the demographics are, and approximately 85% of my listeners are in the United States. People in other parts of the world don't necessarily have the financial resources for managing patients with sepsis, especially when sepsis accounts for almost 20% of all the world's deaths. I'm not trying to be an elitist or anything like that, but the reality is that the rest of the world is not going to have the financial resources available to administer perhaps the next monoclonal antibody or whatever agent becomes the next best thing, next big thing, excuse me, for sepsis. We have to find things that are going to benefit the world in general with something reasonable, which is why I'm happy that the researchers are still experimenting with the things that we currently have on the shelf. Cyanokit is an IV high-dose vitamin B12 formulation that has been on the market for several years. The purpose of this therapy is for the treatment of cyanide poisoning, but there have been several case reports since then of people using this vitamin B12 formulation and septic shock here and there, and the majority of the data exists for its utilization in severe vasoplegia after cardiac surgery, and I've discussed that in other posts in the past. Now, I've spoken to colleagues who've had this therapy available for their patients, and their main comment is honestly how expensive it is, which is something that I'm going to get to later on in this podcast episode. So I guess that cheap and readily available does not apply for this particular formulation of IV vitamin B12. As always, I need to give the disclaimer that this is my interpretation of this clinical trial. It is free for you to download. Check it out in the show notes 
below or go to my website and check it out and definitely read the article for yourself. This is not medical advice. So when you're looking at the dosage used of vitamin B12 in these patients with septic shock, the authors here provided patients with 5 grams of IV vitamin B12. For the sake of context, though, over-the-counter variants of vitamin B12 come in 5,000, 1,000, and 500 micrograms. Of these, the largest is obviously, well, 5,000 micrograms. But 5,000 micrograms for those who do conversions is really only 5 milligrams. Here, the patients were given 5 grams. Not 5 milligrams, 5 grams. That's a whole lot more. And why did the authors choose to go with 5 grams as their dose? And here I'm going to speculate certain things. First, the aforementioned cyanocate is already 5 grams. This is convenient as it is already prepared and can be purchased. No fancy compound pharmacy needed. Second, there's plenty of data out there showing a lack of harm for utilizing this dose, again, because of the cyanocate. As a matter of fact, if you type in cyanocate into the search bar for the paper, it's not mentioned once. But digging a little bit deeper, which is what you all count on me to do, you would see that cyanocate is actually mentioned in the study, study protocol on clinicaltrials.gov. So the next question is, why should vitamin B12 work in septic shock? And at this point, I've definitely beat my whole entire audience over the head with the simple fact that septic shock is a distributive type of shock, which means that patients vasodilate. And if we look at basic hemodynamic equations that I share with you all the time, and repetitively, repetitively and such is that MAP is equal to cardiac output times SVR. SVR stands for systemic vascular resistance. In septic shock patients, the main problem is that the systemic vascular resistance hits the ground. They over-vasodilate. So here, Patel and, and company, they cite several articles discussing the pathophysiology of this, but the bottom line is that there's too much nitric oxide and too much hydrogen sulfide which are produced. So this creates this vasodilation and this drop in SVR, which we see in our patients with septic shock. So therefore, what vitamin B12 should do in patients with septic shock is that it, quote, scavenges and prevents nitric oxide as well as hydrogen sulfide formation and has the potential to, um, to stop capillary leak, to promote capillary membrane stabilization, and to accentuate recovery, end quote. I took that directly from the paper. All this sounds mighty good to me. So this is why they created this study to evaluate this theory. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I don't want to get too nerdy here, but now that we have these foundations set, we should take a dive into the article. And one of the first things you'll see is that this is a phase two study. So to make this easier to understand the phases, phase one is where researchers see if the possible treatment will cause harm. Phase two is where we see if the treatment has the desired effect. And phase one and phase two are usually a small group of people, not, not a lot of patients because, you know, they're just trying to see if they, hey, does it cause harm? And B, does it kind of sort of maybe work? The third phase is where they compare the actual treatment itself to the current standard of care. These are, these are the very exciting trials because they use larger numbers of patients. And then stage four is where they go ahead and look at the long-term benefits as well as side effects. 
But one of the important things to say here is that phase two studies are not designed to be revolutionary. They're really not powered for such. They don't have enough patients like involved in it. So we always have to be academically honest with ourselves regarding the expectation for these types of trials. So getting back to the type of trial that this is, is definitely a mouse, mouthful. It is a phase two, single center, double blind, allocation concealed, placebo controlled, parallel group, pilot randomized control trial. Holy cow, I'll save that five times fast. I'll save you the endless Google searches as to what all that means, but honestly, great job by the authors because this is the correct way to do this type of trial. Now, looking at the patient selection, these patients were in septic shock. This means that they got fluids, cultures, antibiotics, and vasopressors. They were all already on board. And they were enrolled as well as received the study drug or the placebo within 24 hours of admission. And they ended up enrolling a total of 20 patients. Remember, this is a phase two pilot study. It's not meant to have 400 patients in each arm. So this acknowledges that they weren't trying to recruit a ton of patients. Also, being academically honest, 20 patients isn't enough to power any type of significant endpoints. We could throw away any notion of figuring out if there's a trend towards a decrease in mortality, change in length of stay, and such things. We got to kind of throw all that stuff out the door. That being said, the primary outcome is not useful for our clinical practice. It's nerdy phase two study type of stuff so that phase three eventually becomes a successful study. I'll spare you the details and some time in your life. You're welcome. The secondary outcome is where we find if the treatment has the desired effect or not. You know, the part that makes this a phase two trial. Here, what they did was measure for a change in, bear with me, the monobromo by main reactive H2S levels, hydrogen sulfide levels. I like to see the look on the faces of the people who work in my lab if I were to call them and see if this lab was available at my shop. Or my shop. So what they did here is that they checked that level before infusion as well as 30 minutes after infusion. In addition, they noted the norepinephrine dose at randomization one minute before the infusion of B12 was given, 30 minutes after, and then three hours after. Now, with regards to the hydrogen sulfide level, which I'm not going to even try to go ahead and say that monobromo, look, look at that, I just tried. I told you I wouldn't, I did it, and I failed. Go me. Well, they found that there was a statistically significant change in that level. Check plus for the researchers. Pat on the back. They found what they wanted to. Now, with regards to the norepinephrine dose, the authors also found a benefit here. The norepinephrine dose decreased in a statistically significant manner from one minute before the start of the infusion up to 30 minutes after the infusion. There was also a decrease at the 30-minute mark up to three hours, but this was honestly not statistically significant. So, you know, hopefully the phase three trial will show us a difference. But I guess what we could do right now is just call this a catecholamine sparing agent because if you give this IV vitamin B12, you end up not using that much levofed. Now, there were no differences in the tertiary outcomes, which included mortality, length of stay, etc. But I already mentioned to you that we didn't expect any of this because this is a phase two trial. And thankfully, no adverse effects were noted. Okay, cool. So now we have that benefit of the decrease hydrogen sulfide levels as well as the decrease in norepinephrine doses. Now, when, when do we use this in clinical practice? Where do we go from here? Here's the catch, and here's what's not mentioned in the article, but something that came to mind. If you look up the price of Cyanakit, which is the IV vitamin B12 formulation, on up to date, 
it shows that the average wholesale price for one dose of this medication, which again, one dose is what these patients received in this trial, was $985 per dose. And this was the dose that the, the price that I found looking it up today, again, the 28th of February of 2023. And this is not as inexpensive as we'd like IV vitamin B12 to be. At a grand a pop, it should really do better than make our vasopressor requirements decrease faster. I mean, otherwise, it's just not cost effective. And sure, this may be a positive study for a phase two, because again, they found the two, the two secondary, secondary outpoints that, endpoints that they really wanted, that it is efficacious as something. And then people may think and get excited that this is the next best, best thing. But the reality, I like to get excited too, but I'm not. I'm not. At a $1,000 a pop, I'm not excited about what we have thus far, but again, I'm, I'm more than happy to come back later when the phase three is published and say, hey, by the way, you know, we have some better outcomes than just it being a catecholamine sparing agent. Because at the price that it currently sits at right now, the phase three really needs to be a game changer because at the end of the day, our patients need it. We need, we need additional tools to help decrease mortality in patients with septic shock. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast episode. Um, definitely, if you have a chance, go ahead and leave me a good review and share this with your friends. Uh, leave me the review on whatever uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to this podcast, and definitely share it with other people around there. Greatly appreciate it. Hope you all have a great day. Bye.